Welcome back to the Dr. Joey Munoz Show. I'm your host, Dr. Joey, nutrition science PhD and founder of Fit for Life Academy. In today's episode, we're going to be covering one of my favorite topics, which is hunger and satiety regulation. We're going to discuss some of the main mechanisms by which our bodies regulate our hunger and our satiety. And then we're going to discuss specific nutritional strategies that you can use to quote unquote hack your hunger to improve or increase your ability to adhere to your dietary plan and achieve your weight loss goals. And not everybody's trying to achieve weight loss either though, right? Some of these recommendations are going to be really helpful just for sustaining a healthy body composition and having a healthy overall diet. Before we start with the episode, I wanted to announce that I have officially opened up the waitlist for my course, The Fit for Life Blueprint. The Fit for Life Blueprint should serve as a step-by-step -step guide to help you achieve your health and fitness goals. The course is structured into five modules that cover different aspects of your health and fitness, including mindset, how to develop healthy habits, nutrition fundamentals, environment and lifestyle, and how to train for hypertrophy, AKA muscle growth. If you're interested, there are no commitments to sign up for the waitlist. The link is going to be in the description of this episode. Make sure to check that out. In addition, if you've been struggling to achieve your health and fitness goals, and you feel like you would benefit from some help and accountability, let me help you. Inquire for one-on-one -on -one coaching to work directly with me by going over to fitforlifeacademy.health. The link is gonna be in the description of this episode and submit an inquiry. Okay, let's dive right into the episode. So in theory, weight loss is pretty simple. We know we have to be in a negative energy balance. The caloric intake that you, or the number of calories that you consume cannot exceed the number of calories that your body expends on any given day. However, most people fail to achieve their weight loss goals. There's actually really good data from a 2001 meta-analysis that showed that 80% of people who attempt weight loss or achieve a certain degree of weight loss regain it all within just five years. Why? That question of why is difficult to answer, but the truth is that it's multifactorial, right? Different variables influence why we eat and how much we eat, including environmental reasons, right? Environmental reasons can be your food environment, the types of foods that you have around you can influence how much you eat, the approach that you use for weight loss, right? whether you use a very restrictive approach or an approach that's more sustainable, and your mindset could also influence your ability to lose and maintain weight loss, right? For example, there's research showing that individuals who have a dichotomous mindset or think of food as black and white, aka a very rigid dieting approach, are less likely to maintain weight loss long term. And that'll be an episode or a topic that I'll cover in a future episode. But one of the major reasons is hunger and satiety regulation, right? Oftentimes, people neglect this. If you diet and you cut out the amount of food that you're eating and you don't make strategical changes to your nutrition, you're going to feel hungrier. And if you feel hungrier often, it's going to be more difficult to adhere to your overall dietary plan, right? So reducing hunger and using strategies that have been proven to reduce hunger 
is a very, very useful strategy to not only help you lose weight, but also maintain weight loss and maintain a healthy body composition. For example, a study within the European Commission's Satiety Innovation Project explored whether reducing appetite could help maintain weight loss. They took participants who had successfully lost weight and gave them specifically designed food products meant to curb appetite over a 12-week period. The results show that those who experienced a sustained decrease in daily food intake, as well as those who reported decreased appetites, were more successful in maintaining weight loss. So what's the conclusion of this? As I mentioned, strategies to reduce hunger will help with weight loss and will help you maintain your weight loss long-term, which is the ultimate goal. So what are some of the strategies we are going to be discussing today? And I'm going to be giving an explanation as to why each of these strategies is so useful for regulating your hunger and your satiety. We are going to discuss four main strategies. One, reducing ultra-processed food consumption. Two, focusing on consuming more protein and fiber. Three, shifting more of your calories earlier in the day versus later in the day. And four, the importance of prioritizing sleep. Before we discuss the specific strategies, let's discuss the different mechanisms that regulate hunger and satiety. By the way, this is not an exhaustive discussion on hunger and satiety regulation because that would honestly take up an entire textbook. Okay, hunger and satiety are mainly regulated by the hypothalamus, which is a region of the brain. And the hypothalamus communicates with other parts of the brain via different neurotransmitters and hormones. Neurotransmitters are chemicals released by the brain that have physiological functions. The neurochemicals or the neurotransmitters that we'll be discussing here are neurotransmitters that specifically signal either an increase in hunger or the opposite, which is an increase in satiety or satisfaction, okay? And then there are a number of different hormones as well, like leptin and ghrelin, which you may have already heard of. There's a number of other ones as well. So ghrelin, first and foremost, is probably the most popular hormone that everybody has heard of. Ghrelin is also known as the hunger hormone. And ghrelin is secreted from our stomach from specialized cells known as PD1 cells. Okay. Ghrelin is secreted when our stomach is empty. Okay. So we haven't eaten in a while. There's no food in our stomach. We release ghrelin. Now, ghrelin travels through our bloodstream and makes its way to the hypothalamus where it activates specific neural circuits and the release of specific neurotransmitters. For example, ghrelin increases the release of two specific neurotransmitters. One is known as AGRP or agouti-related peptide. I think I'm pronouncing that correctly. And NPY, neuropeptide Y. Okay. Both of these neurotransmitters, again, which are released by the hypothalamus, essentially signal to us that it's time to eat. They increase hunger. Okay, so after we eat, our stomach stretches, which results in a reduction in ghrelin levels, which therefore reduces the concentration of those neurotransmitters, AGRP and NPY, which ultimately results in a reduction in hunger. On the other hand, we have leptin which is known as the satiety hormone. And leptin is mainly released by our fat cells, our adipocytes, okay? 
And leptin travels to the hypothalamus, similarly to ghrelin, and it induces satiety via different neural circuits. Okay, so in the hypothalamus, leptin induces the release of POMC, a neurotransmitter known as pro-opiomelanocortin. Okay, and POMC, unlike uh, AGRP and NPY, actually signals satisfaction, an increase in satiety. So ghrelin and leptin are like two sides of a balance, right? Increased ghrelin results in increased hunger. Increased leptin results in increased satiety. Now, it's not just about how much leptin we have, but also the brain's sensitivity to leptin. So different variables like stress, sleep, and the level of adiposity that somebody has can influence how sensitive the brain is to leptin. So it's important to prioritize these other lifestyle and environmental factors as well, um, besides just the concentration of these specific hormones, because as I mentioned, other things can influence the effects of these hormones as well. And interestingly, um, there's some evidence that individuals who are overweight or obese may actually have something called leptin resistance, which again means that leptin doesn't function the way it's supposed to. Uh, the brain is not as sensitive to leptin. And there's a hypothesis that individuals with obesity are more leptin resistant is because individuals who have more adiposity actually have higher levels of leptin. However, they're unable to regulate hunger and satiety compared to somebody who has less adiposity and it has a normal and healthy body composition. So it's complicated, right? It's not just about the concentration of these molecules, but other things also influence the sensitivity and the function of these different molecules. And ghrelin and leptin are just two hormones, right? They're the most popular ones, which is why we're discussing them. But there's a number of other molecules as well, like PYY, which is peptide YY, cortisol, cholecystokinin, uh, glucagon-like peptide 1, GLP-1, which is the hormone that is targeted with some of the most popular fat loss medications, right? Like uh, Ozempic, right? So Ozempic is a GLP-1 agonist, and there's um, several of these different medications that essentially mimic the function of GLP-1, which is stimulating satiety, reducing hunger. So as you can see, all of these different molecules, hormones, compounds work synergistically, and it's really complicated. In addition to that, it's not just hormones that influence our hunger and satiety regulation. For example, there is mechanical signaling that also influences hunger and satiety regulation. What does that mean? In our stomach, we have stretch receptors known as mechanoreceptors. Okay, these are receptors that respond and send a signal to the brain in response to how stretched the stomach is. Okay, so when our stomach stretches, these mechanoreceptors send signals to the medulla oblongata via the vagus nerve. The medulla oblongata is another portion of our brain. And then the medulla oblongata communicates with the hypothalamus, which again is the central regulator of hunger and satiety. As I've mentioned now a couple times, this stuff is really complex, right? The presence of food and nutrients in our digestive tract is a major variable that influences our hunger and satiety regulation. But there are other variables as well. For example, psychological variables, right? Your relationship with food. Do you use food for coping mechanisms? This can influence how these different central regulators of hunger and satiety 
respond. There are environmental variables as well, right? The presence of food, smell. If you smell a freshly baked pie, you might feel hungry. If you see a food that you really like, you might feel hungry. So it's not just the presence of food in our stomach or in our digestive tract that influences our hunger and satiety regulation. It's much more complicated than that. That being said, there are many different strategies that have been scientifically proven to help reduce hunger and improve satiety. So let's go ahead and discuss those. The first strategy is to minimize the consumption of ultra processed food. So first and foremost, let's define what processing means, okay? Because in theory, everything that we eat is processed to a certain degree, right? If you have an apple and you slice it into apple slices, that is now slightly more processed, right? If you take those apple slices and you cook them down and add some sugar and uh, add some dough, now you have an apple pie that is slightly more processed, right? If you grab those apple slices and you juice them and now you have apple juice, that is even more processed. And then on the complete opposite spectrum is where we have ultra processed foods. So an apple flavored candy would be an example of an ultra processed food, right? By definition, ultra processed foods barely resemble its original form, right? You can't say that an apple flavored candy is an apple, but you can say that apple slices are an apple, right? Or apple pie contains apple because it closely resembles the original food. So ultra processed foods do not even resemble the original food that it came from. And again, minimizing the consumption of these foods is one of the best things that you can do for hunger and satiety regulation. Why? It's not because ultra processed foods are inherently harmful to our health. It's because it's been shown time and time again that ultra processed foods are less satiating, so they don't make you feel as full on a per calorie basis, and they tend to be hyper palatable. What does that mean? It means that they're harder to put down. They're very easy to overconsume, right? It's a lot easier to eat a thousand calories of things like donuts, candy, cookies, versus a thousand calories of boiled potatoes, broccoli, or grilled chicken, the latter being examples of minimally processed foods. Right? And like I mentioned, there's a ton of research to support this. There's one classic, classic study by Kevin Hall, who's a world-renowned researcher in the areas of nutrition, metabolism, and body composition. The study explored the impact of ultra-processed foods on the energy intake of 20 weight-stable adults. Participants were randomized to consume either ultra-processed or unprocessed diets for two weeks each, with meals designed to be equivalent in caloric density macronutrients, and other micronutrients as well. In other words, the only real difference between the two diets was the degree of processing of the foods. The nutritional composition between the two diets was actually very, very similar. The participants were instructed to eat without restrictions, and guess what happened? The ultra-processed diet led to a higher energy intake of about 500 calories per day with increased carbohydrate and fat consumption, but not protein. Correlating with energy intake, participants gained 0.9 kilos or about 2 pounds on the ultra-processed diet and lost about 0.9 kilos or about 2 pounds on the unprocessed diet, suggesting that reducing ultra-processed food intake might be a viable strategy for managing and preventing obesity without having to count your calories, right? Just eating more minimally processed food 
will spontaneously result in you reducing your caloric intake. So strategy number one, limit ultra processed food consumption and eat more minimally processed foods. Very simple. Strategy number two is to focus on protein and fiber. You should be consuming a high protein and high fiber diet. Why? Because protein and fiber are the two most satiating nutrients. They're more satiating than simple carbohydrates or dietary fats. That means that on a per calorie basis, they help you feel more full. 100 calories of protein or 100 calories of fiber should help you feel more full than 100 calories of simple carbohydrates or 100 calories of dietary fat, okay? Data show that a high-protein diet can actually increase some of these satiety-related hormones that we've talked about, like PYY, peptide YY, um, or GLP-1, glucagon-like peptide 1, more than a high-carb or high-fat meal, even when calories are the same. For example, a 2005 study demonstrated that individuals who augmented their protein intake to 30% of their total daily caloric intake experienced a reduction in total daily energy intake by approximately 440 calories. That's a lot, right? If you just eat more protein, in theory, you should overall eat less calories. This, uh, this result was attributed to diminishing feelings of hunger, which supports the notion that protein can naturally facilitate a caloric deficit without conscious dietary restriction. Again, this is without counting calories. This is without intentional restriction. This is simply allowing individuals to eat as much as they want. However, you have to hit this certain amount of protein. In this study, it was 30% of total daily calories, and individuals spontaneously reduced their overall caloric intake by about 440 calories per day, which is significant. Fiber is similar to protein in terms of satiety regulation. So the main mechanisms by which fiber initiates satiety regulation is based off of volume and digestion speed. So foods like veggies, fruits, and legumes, which are all examples of high fiber foods, have low caloric density, right? So they have low calories for a lot of food, which means that they provide high volume. Remember previously we said that one of the mechanisms that stimulates satiety is the stretch of the stomach via the mechanoreceptors, right? So if you have more volume, aka eat more less calorie-dense foods, you're going to stimulate satiety via that mechanism. So soluble fiber, there are different types of fibers. You have soluble fiber and insoluble fiber. Soluble fibers are those that are dissolvable in water. They form a gel-like substance in the intestinal tract. So when they come in contact with water, you form this kind of gel, um, which slows down gastric emptying because it slows down the speed at which food moves through your intestine. And slowing down the rate at which food moves through the intestine increases transit time, which means that you have food in your intestines for a longer period of time, which stimulates satiety. In addition, there is some evidence that fermentation of fiber in the large intestine by the gut microbiome produces certain short-chain fatty acids that can increase hunger-suppressing hormones, okay? So when we eat fiber, we don't digest fiber. The definition of fiber is an indigestible carbohydrate. So what happens? It moves through our intestinal tract and makes its way to the large intestine, and that's where we have the gut microbiome or the, a large portion of the gut microbiome, which is 
the microbes that live in our intestines, right? In our body, we should say. And the gut microbiome is linked to a whole host of different um, uh, diseases, uh, even obesity, diabetes, cardiovascular disease. It's really linked to pretty much everything. And feeding the healthy microbes by consuming fiber is one, helpful for our health, but also helpful for hunger and satiety regulation. So when these microbes uh, ferment different fibers, they produce short-chain fatty acids as a byproduct. One of those short-chain fatty acids is acetate. There's a couple of them, but acetate has been shown to increase the production of um, hormones that suppress hunger, okay? For example, a study by Astrup and colleagues investigated the effects of fiber on hunger regulation in 22 obese patients following a very low-calorie diet with a nutritional powder providing 388 calories per day for women or 466 calories per day for men. That's obviously very, very low calorically, but it's essentially a study designed to help look at the satiating effects of fiber, okay? The participants were randomized to two weeks of treatment with either a very low calorie diet supplemented with 30 grams a day of dietary fiber or a similar very low calorie diet without the fiber, followed by a crossover to the alternate regimen for an additional two weeks. So every participant underwent each of the two conditions, low calorie diet with fiber or low calorie diet without fiber. Although weight loss was similar across both groups because calories were the same, which makes sense, approximately 10 kilograms over the four weeks. So that's actually a lot of weight loss, right? About 22 pounds in four weeks, that's huge. Those receiving the dietary fiber reported significantly lower hunger ratings. So again, simply just eating more fiber, eating more protein will help regulate your hunger and satiety. The third strategy is to consume more calories earlier in the day. There's evidence showing that the way you space out your caloric intake throughout the day can help regulate hunger and satiety. And in general, front-loading your calories, aka eating the majority of your food earlier in the day, is more beneficial for regulating hunger and satiety than backloading calories, which is eating more food towards the end of the day. For example, a randomized control trial by Ruddick, Collins, and colleagues investigated the impact of timing calorie intake on weight loss in 30 individuals with obesity or overweight. Participants were randomized to one of two dietary groups, one with a morning-loaded caloric intake, aka a big breakfast, and the other with an evening-loaded caloric intake, aka a big dinner. Each group followed a four-week calorie-restricted diet, and the study aimed to discern any significant differences in various parameters related to weight loss. The findings revealed that there were no substantial variations in total daily energy expenditure, resting metabolic rate, or overall weight loss between the two groups, aka when you eat is not going to influence your energy expenditure, your metabolism, or weight loss if calories are equated. This makes sense because, again, both groups consume the same number of calories and we know that energy balance is king when it comes to weight loss. However, despite the lack of significant differences in weight loss outcomes, participants who consumed a morning-loaded diet reported a notable reduction in hunger levels. This suggests that the big breakfast approach may be beneficial for weight loss adherence due to its capacity to suppress appetite which may result in lower caloric intake when consuming food ad libitum, again, when calories are not controlled. 
many of these studies control calories so that we can see the effects of the particular variable being tested, which is timing in this instance, right? Eating in the morning versus eating at night. However, if you extrapolate these findings that show that people who eat more in the morning have better hunger and satiety regulation, and you put them in an environment like, right, normal free living adults, where you have access to food all day long, you can uh, assume that eating more food earlier in the day will improve hunger and satiety, which should result in an overall reduction in caloric intake. And there's evidence to suggest this as well. Now, why is breakfast helpful? One, there's the idea that eating earlier in the morning synchronizes your eating patterns to normal fluctuations in hormone levels. For example, ghrelin, aka the hunger hormone, tends to be higher in the morning. So if you eat more in the morning, you suppress hunger when you are hungriest. So it helps essentially synchronize your eating patterns to fluctuations in hormones, which naturally fluctuate throughout the day. There are also just inherent benefits of feeling more satiated earlier in the day. Anytime you have a big meal, you're going to feel full for a certain period of time afterwards, right? Whether it's three hours, four hours, whatever it may be. And if you strategically consume food earlier in the day, you're going to have that benefit, right? So if I have breakfast at eight, I'm probably going to feel full till like noon or 1 p.m. Whereas if you eat that big meal at night, let's say 8 p.m. instead of 8 a.m., you still get that satiating benefit, but you're going to sleep soon after that. So you're not really taking advantage of the satiating benefits of having a large meal. Hey guys, some of you may not know that I'm the scientific advisor for a supplement company called Outwork Nutrition. I help with the formulation of new products to help ensure that they're effective and backed by science. Unlike many other supplement companies out there, we don't rely on exaggerated claims or flashy marketing tactics. Instead, we let the science speak for itself. We take pride in formulating products that deliver real results, helping you achieve your fitness goals in a meaningful way. If you're in the market for supplements like protein powder, pre-workout, or recovery products, make sure to check us out at outworknutrition.com. And as a thank you for being an avid listener of this podcast, use code Joey for an exclusive discount at checkout. You can find the link to our website down in the description of this podcast episode. Remember, our goal is to empower you with science-backed supplements that truly make a difference. Choose Outwork Nutrition and elevate your fitness to new heights. Okay, strategy number four, which is the last strategy we're going to cover, is getting good sleep. By definition, this is not a nutritional strategy, but it is incredibly important, okay? Sleep regulates hunger hormones. Your sleep will impact your ghrelin and leptin concentrations. So sleep disturbances, aka sleep restrictions. So if on the weekend you're going out till 2 or 3 in the morning, and typically on the weekend is when you overeat, it might be due to your sleep patterns, right? Because sleep restriction results in increased ghrelin concentrations, decreased leptin concentrations. For example, a study conducted by Spiegel and colleagues revealed that after two nights of sleep restriction for just four hours, healthy participants exhibited an 18% reduction in leptin alongside a 28% elevation in ghrelin, which was paralleled by increased feelings of hunger, particularly for calorie-dense, carbohydrate-rich foods. In addition to this, there are cross-sectional data showing that poor sleep 
is associated with an increased risk of obesity. A 2018 narrative review concluded that individuals who sleep less than seven hours per night have a significantly higher risk of obesity compared to those that slept more than seven hours per night. So sleep is incredibly important. So I want to share with you guys some sleep hygiene related tips that should help improve your sleep if you don't sleep well. And by the way, if you do not prioritize your sleep quality, it's probably the number one thing you can do for your overall health. Forget hunger and satiety regulation. Literally, probably the number one thing you can do for your overall health, okay? So tip number one is to have a cold and dark room when you sleep. Temperature is really important. Our body's core temperature actually needs to drop before we can fall asleep. And if you have a cool room, it can facilitate that process. And similarly, light disturbs sleep. So having a dark room is extremely helpful. Having a relaxing activity prior to sleep, like taking a warm bath or just reading a book in general can help relax you and can help put you in a state where you are ready to fall asleep. Limiting light exposure from your TV or phone an hour before bed is also extremely helpful. If you're somebody who's sensitive to sounds or light, like myself, consider using earplugs or eye masks. I share this story all the time, and it's probably embarrassing for my wife, but when she was pregnant, she was snoring a ton. I am extremely sensitive to sounds when I sleep, so when when she was pregnant, I would use earplugs to sleep, and she thought it was ridiculous, but it was the only way I could get good sleep. So highly, highly recommend things like earplugs or eye masks if you are a sensitive sleeper. And lastly, which is also incredibly important, is to limit caffeine intake at least six hours before bed, okay? Caffeine has a half-life of about five to six hours, so you don't want to be consuming it in proximity to sleep. And limiting fluid consumption in proximity to sleep is also important because you don't want to be waking up a ton to go to the restroom. Okay, guys, those are the four main strategies that you can use to help regulate your hunger and satiety. So to quickly sum everything up, we know that managing hunger and satiety is a really useful strategy to improve dietary adherence and improve your chances of successfully losing weight. As we discussed, the regulation of hunger is really complex. It is mainly controlled by the hypothalamus, and there are a ton of different variables, including hormones, neuropeptides, mechanical signaling, environmental factors, and psychological factors that all influence hunger and satiety regulation. And the four main strategies that you can use to reduce hunger and improve satiety is one, reducing the consumption of highly processed foods and increasing the consumption of minimally processed foods, two, eating more protein and fiber, three, eating more of your daily food intake earlier versus later in the day, and lastly, prioritizing sleep. If you've watched or listened to this episode this far and you enjoyed it, I would greatly appreciate if you took a second to rate the podcast and leave a review. I make these episodes completely for free. They take a ton of time and effort, and my goal is to be able to help as many people as possible. If you simply just take literally two minutes to leave a rating and leave a review, it helps me a ton, it helps my podcast grow, and it helps me reach more people, and of course, I will be eternally grateful for you. Anyways, I hope you enjoyed the episode, and I'll catch you next week.